This podcast is for adults only. Content covers BDSM, kink, fetish, and adult sexuality. This type of content may be triggering for some, and we urge you to put your mental health first when considering if it's suitable for you. All activities discussed on this podcast are between enthusiastically consenting adults. BDSM and kink activities carry safety risks, and we do not endorse activities mentioned on this podcast as right for your personal circumstances. We recommend self-education and engagement with community as appropriate ways to begin your real-world kink journey after you finish listening to this podcast. This is your extreme cheesiness warning. We are very cheesy people, and if you're not comfortable with that, this podcast is not for you. Hey, Oz. Yes? What did the cheese say when it looked in the mirror? What did the cheese say when it looked in the mirror? Hello, me. Welcome to Help, I Think I'm Kinky. I'm Oz. And I'm Prez. We're Australian lifestyle kinksters and along with our kinky friends, we're here to help you get started on your kink journey. In this first season of Help, I Think I'm Kinky, our goal is to promote kink-aware inspiration, education and a sense of community. We share a variety of perspectives and voices and some of the conversations that happen behind closed doors. Last episode, we heard from our kinky companions about how they stay safe in kink. We also promised you that this week we would be exploring the super important topic of aftercare and also whether sex and kink always go together. However, we have had a slight change to the schedule. There's one more piece of the staying safe puzzle that we're able to bring you this week. That is how the law treats BDSM activities, particularly in Australia. Luckily, we know a kinky expert who's prepared to share her wisdom. Please be aware this conversation will generally unpack this topic in relation to recent research and does not serve as formal legal advice. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast. Nadia David is an advocate, criminologist and researcher. Her research areas include feminist legal theory and jurisprudence, violence against women, sexuality and gender theories, BDSM, consent, criminal law and police corruption. Nadia recently co-authored the book Consent, Stealthing and Desire-Based Contracting in Criminal Law and is completing her PhD research on the negotiation of consent between heterosexual BDSM couples and the impact of the criminal law on the way people play. Nadia also has a background as a police member and police prosecutor, which has given her a unique perspective into BDSM and the law. And last but certainly not least important, she's also a kinkster who's been practicing BDSM for 15 years. Welcome, Nadia. Thanks so much for having me. Nadia, I would love to know, how did you first become interested and involved in BDSM and how do you express that in your life today? So I was in Sydney in the police and I remember being really drawn to 
pornography and people's stories that had an element of kink in it. I had no understanding of what that meant. And also then I started to realise that as a kid, when I sort of started to reflect on that, because I felt kind of bad about that as a feminist, that I should want to see women in bondage or women, you know, in pain. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. And then when I sort of started to reflect on my upbringing in my childhood and I remembered getting my my mum was a social worker and she had this sociology book and it had this whole thing on Freud um and there was this bizarre photo of a woman in bondage in the Freud section and I just remember like a naked woman in bondage I was like wow okay in hindsight I'd like to find that book and find out what the hell that was about uh, but I remembered finding the photograph really exciting and I would have been like probably a, like an early teenager but I also remember really liking, say, like we go and get fish and chips for dinner and I would sit the hot fish and chips on my lap and I would leave it there, even though it was hurting as long as I could till we got home. And I remember finding that quite exciting, even though it was painful. And then sort of I met people online and it was a burgeoning internet, like the internet was really kicking off. And I remember being like really drawn to the community of BDSM and how everyone was really kind of like it was such a crazy community of people who were super open with one another and talking in the most kind of candid ways and then juxtaposing that with my policing was quite interesting so it was really because I became a domestic violence specialist and so yeah it was quite an intense time in my sort of mid-20s of trying to figure out why do I kind of like domestic violence that's how I kept thinking about it um, and then it wasn't until I kind of met people in real life and sort of saw that they were really normal people and I started understanding there's such a difference between like abusive relationships and consensual BDSM and that it's really not about pain or abuse. It's actually about like intensity and about, you know, power dynamics and all that sort of stuff. Fairly soon after that, I met my husband who's who's a dom and sort of we started a relationship and yeah, we're still sort of together. Um, so yeah, that's probably my journey. And, and then I started doing the PhD as well because I was really interested in how submissive women who identify as feminists understand those two things and how they um, integrate that and that because that was a really sticky that was a sticking point for me um, in my kind of journey as well. For anyone who's not certain how would you explain the difference between BDSM and abuse? I would say if it makes you feel good and it makes your partner feel good it's not abusive. Um, I can get into the whole kind of consent stuff but I don't find that helpful. I think realistically, if you, after you've had a play session or after you've done whatever you've done, if you feel really awful and you feel ashamed and the person that you're with is not helping with that, that's an abusive situation. That's how I would put it. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, it just matters how you feel and whether or not what you're doing and if you're doing it with your partner or someone else, um, if that is hurting you or hurting the other person in a way that is irreparable. So if you're doing permanent damage, also not a good idea. Um, so yeah, abuse is a, it's it, it's a very difficult thing to understand if you're into really extreme BDSM or if you're into master slave relationships or if you're into like really full on stuff. It can be quite difficult, I think, for people to draw the line. But you have to be very clear where the line is. That's I guess the message I would give: be very clear where the line is. In your role in the police force, what exposure did you have to BDSM there? That's really interesting because in hindsight, I think I had more exposure than I realised at the time. What really got my interest in how do we as legal professionals or investigators understand the difference between like how do we how can we tell if it's BDSM versus if it's abuse was a couple of cases where 
there were there was allegations made not actually by the alleged victim but by someone either her doctor there was one where it was a doctor and one where it was her sister where they had noticed injuries to the woman and they then made a complaint to police after speaking with her and she wouldn't tell them anything and police initiated an investigation in which the the partner in both occasions said that it was consensual it was just rough sex and she was really into it and they couldn't really get a clear answer from her and so as a police prosecutor that came to me and I remember kind of reading them and going I can't tell if she's just fearful and she doesn't want to say anything or she and it's very common in domestic violence matters where on the you know the the day or the moment when the police are there and it's the day of the assault, the woman will give a, a statement, it's full and frank, and then two weeks later there'll be an about face and she'll say, I made the whole thing up. And that's really common. Um, there's a whole range of reasons why. So it's difficult, I think, as a, as a police prosecutor or an investigator to kind of see the difference. So I think in hindsight what I was seeing was BDSM that wasn't either acknowledged by the people involved or even understood that that's what it was. And it certainly wasn't understood by police. Or it was potentially vaguely consensual rough sex um, that probably could have been prosecuted or it was flat out, you know, non-consensual. So I think, though, and having spoken with a number of lawyers and police um, and um, other criminal justice professionals, it seems like it's very rare, unless someone dies, it's very rare that BDSM is actually named, that most of the time... Um, if something gets to court um, or child protection sort of stuff as well, it's very rare that any of the parties will actually name it as BDSM or sadomasochism or anything like that. How does the law currently view BDSM-related activities? With suspicion. To put it bluntly, most of what we do is completely legal, right? There's, like It's legal to bind someone um, with their consent it's legal to spank someone with their consent. It's legal to flog someone with their consent. All of that stuff is legal. So flat out, you cannot consent to actual bodily harm. That is the law across all states and territories of Australia. So actual bodily harm is slightly different in each jurisdiction, but think really low bar. I'm talking a bruise that lasts for a couple of days. I'm talking a welt or a red mark that lasts for more. It's got to be more than transient. So if you've inflicted, say you've had a flogging, or you've inflicted a flogging and there are still marks there the next day, that is actual bodily harm. Um, if you have, if you're into cutting, if you're into um, any blood play, that would absolutely be actual bodily harm because there would be an, an incision, a laceration. So the law looks at bodily harm as very problematic. That being said, there's really no hard and fast rule about that because there's been cases where um, depending on the gender of the victim and the gender of the defendant, um, you know, that has been let go. Um, that has been considered to be, you know, something that uh, husbands and wives can get up to in the privacy of their home without the interference of the court. So in, there's been cases where a woman has had her husband's initial branded, initials branded on her buttocks and that was deemed to be a private thing. Like that's actual bodily harm. That is, that's actually grievous bodily harm. Um, whereas in the case where the defendant and the victim were not um, in a relationship, there was a case where there was a caning by an older man of a younger girl. This is going back a few years. Um, he was actually convicted of assault, even though she flat out said, yeah, I totally asked for it. But because they weren't married, that was a thing. So the law looks at BDSM with some suspicion, but also to be 
like this is, I guess, something to be aware of. If what you're doing could result in the death of your partner, the law will be come down on you like a ton of bricks, even if what you're doing, so breath play is a really good example. If you are engaging in breath play with your partner, particularly where you're occluding the um, the veins or the arteries of the neck, like for starters, that's super dangerous, please don't do that. But if you're engaging with breath play where um, it's possible, that's actually not illegal, by the way, that's not gonna, that's not assault, like you can do that lawfully. But if your partner loses consciousness or in, or has any kind of difficulty breathing, that definitely would meet the standard of actual bodily harm. If your partner dies, even though the breath play itself is not illegal, the fact that you've done that, the fact that you've inflicted that death is absolutely going to put you in the manslaughter box. There's a paper that's been written by an Australian academic who literally goes through this, like why some acts that we do in BDSM are not unlawful in themselves, but if they result in the death of someone, they become unlawful. And breath play is one of the ones he really looks at. Bondage is another one. You can tie someone in a position where they can die. Um, so you've got to be really aware of what you're doing. If you're going to go sort of down the route of doing some things that are a bit more risky, learn a lot about the human body and the human anatomy and read about the cases where people have actually died doing it so you cannot do it that way. But also be really aware of your responsibilities because even though you might have signed consent from someone, it means nothing in a court. You could have a contract, it means nothing. You cannot you cannot sign away your consent to actual bodily harm. There's nothing you can produce to say, look, they consented, you know, it was fine. Even a video, it doesn't make any difference. It will only be relevant if consent is an element of the offence, like sexual assault, for example, where you need to prove non-consent. You know, it's really about being super aware of how risky what you're doing is and then the law will, will be very conservative in terms of being on your side or not. What? are the basic points that you think all kinksters need to be aware of when it comes to the law so when when considering the risks of their own play if you're not inflicting any harm everything you're doing is fine the second point is the law looks at consent in an extremely binary way you either have consent or you don't have consent that's actually not always the case in bdsm in bdsm there's lots of times when you know edge play or boundary pushing or it, like, you know, even where if you've got um, a situation where someone is gagged or, or you know, they forget their safe word or whatever and there's kind of this expectation but you're not saying no so I should keep going, that sort of stuff the law would consider to be very problematic. So keep kind of in the back of your mind, um, have I got full candid, it doesn't have to be enthusiastic consent, I'm not a great believer in that particular phrase, but this concept of consent needs to be understood as, is it present at all times? That doesn't mean you have to go back in every five seconds and say, are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? Because I know that that can kill the buzz. However, you do need to be really clear whether what you're doing is making it difficult for the person to, to say anything or whether the person is in such a state, particularly if you're a dom, you need to be very clear that subs have um, a couple of issues to contend with. <laughs> the first one is they really want to say yes all the time. Like a sub's job is to please their dom. Like that's how a sub would feel is like I've let my dom down if I've if I've had to stop or say no or put them in a position where they I don't like what they're doing. So subs would uh, are inherently problematic in their 
consent because, you know, we want to say yes. We want you to, you know, like what we're doing. The second thing is when a sub, particularly a sub that's into really good on pain, like if you're a bit of a pain slut or um, say you're in a lot, if you're in a bit of a, a, a headspace, as soon as you go into subspace or if you're getting into a bit of psychological play, it's very difficult for submissives to say anything, um, let alone give any indication that they're in trouble. And actually, if someone's in trouble, they, that's usually when they're least likely to be able to verbalise. So if someone's starting to slip into unconsciousness or their pain level is such that they are literally, you know, they're in agony, uh, it's very difficult for the brain to switch from that emotional kind of physical feeling side into a language side that can actually verbalise that. So, you know, if you're not that experienced yet, I would err on the side of conservatism. You know, I think it's a really good idea and I've heard good Dom say, I like to leave my sub wanting more rather than taking her too far and regretting it. So if you're a dom and you're kind of like starting out, like err on the side of caution. You definitely want to be doing too little than too much. And for a sub, get to a point where you're feeling comfortable to say no. And if you're with someone that doesn't encourage that, find someone else <laughs> or try and get them to a place where they are more understanding that that's a really good dom thing is actually having subs say no. I think a lot of good doms are very proud of their subs when they say oh, that's too much or I'm feeling really uncomfortable or I'm feeling scared. I think most doms who know what they're doing would much rather hear that than actually have inflicted long-lasting injury or, or fear on their partner. And the last one is if things go wrong, it happens. It does happen, particularly if you haven't played much, but you need to be able to talk about that with your partner. There's no point just kind of shutting down and going, oh, that wasn't really my fault, you know, you should have used your safe word or whatever. Shit happens. It happens to all of us. Um, if there's an injury, get medical help. You know, you're not going to get you're not going to get in more trouble for getting medical help and looking after your partner. I guarantee you, uh, it's the opposite. And actually, most medical professionals are super discreet, and they, you know, if they see that it's just sort of something that's gone a bit wrong, they will do their best to kind of protect you from it. It's the worry they have is the abusive partner. So if you're kind of not you know, not showing care, that's when I think medical professionals and potentially police are going to be having some problems with you. But if you're caring for your partner and saying, I'm so sorry, like I've done this bad thing or this thing just went wrong and, you know, we've got an injury, you'll be okay. Do you have any tips on staying safe that you've just learned through your personal BDSM experiences? Uh, well, yeah, like my, my husband, my dom's very considerate about bondage. Like I really enjoy bondage. So all the bondage that we use, I can get out of on my own. It doesn't mean it's easy by any stretch of the imagination. I know I'm probably speaking to the converted, but it means, cause he's a bit older than me. So it means that if something happens and I, cause I'm ex-police, I'm a bit, you know, got a bit of PTSD, a bit hypervigilant. I always worry about things like what if dies um or what if there's a masked intruder that comes in right now like while i'm you know tied up how do i get out of this so i highly recommend even though because for most subs bondage is psychological and actually it's more sexy i think when it's psychological if you can get out of it but you choose not to like that's a whole nother thing than just not being able to get out of it because that's a helplessness which is a whole nother thing but i i highly recommend using bondage techniques and methodology 
where your sub can actually get out of it if they need to. Not like I get that there's suspension bondage that's very different. There's safety issues there. You don't want your, your sub to be able to fall out. But if you're, you know, on the ground, highly recommend that. The other thing that I would absolutely recommend is not using gagging techniques that cover the whole mouth. So there's certainly cases where um, submissives have died just from being gagged across the mouth. Just because their nose is there, like they can breathe through their nose, doesn't mean that they're not going to asphyxiate. So use a ball gag, use some other kind of gag that allows the sub to be able to use their mouth. The whole structures of the throat and everything are really important. But And also... Mm, Maybe don't gag early on in your experience because actually verbal communication is really important. So, you know, save that when you're both really comfortable and you feel like you've got your communication sorted. Um, but, yeah, just like being aware of your partner and be, it all being about giving each other pleasure, you'll be okay. Like if that's your main goal, it's not about just getting in and wailing on someone, but your main goal is how can I get my partner off? What do they need? then actually I think you'll be fine anyway. Is there anything in particular that you've been surprised by? I think from the very beginning of my research, I had this very clear kind of idea of consent in BDSM. I thought I had it down. I thought I was all across it. But I have had such a, <laughs> such a learning journey about how, um, how fluid consent is, but also how different DOMs and subs talk about consent and consider consent. Like, interestingly, probably not a surprise, but interestingly, subs don't care that much about consent. Like, most of them that I spoke with were very kind of like, I trust my partner, I trust my dom, um, you know, I'm not that worried about, you know, um, risk, I'm not that worried about consent, like, sort of thing. But for doms, it was like the focus of their thinking. It was all about consent. It was all about risk management. And there was this great weight of responsibility that DOMs carry so that they, you know, both part, you know, both partners get to the end of the session without major injury. But the consent issue, I think, is really interesting. And uh, one of the DOMs that I spoke with really recast the way I looked at consent because from a, a feminist legal theory point of view, a submissive's consent is suspect. The whole way through, I was like, yeah, but. Just because the sub says, yes, keep going, or yes, I consent, is that really consent? Because there's a whole lot of power imbalance there and there's a whole lot of wanting to please and there's sort of neurological stuff going on with subspace. Like, is that actually going to stand up in court? Particularly if you look at FetLife and you see some of the practices that I see, like, you know, subs being whipped with telephone cord and I'm just like, oh, far out, like, that's full on and there's really serious injury like I would look at that and go that's grievous bodily harm she cannot consent to that but then I'd read blog posts from those subs saying how intense that was and how cathartic that was so I sort of started looking at consent a lot more deeply and this particular dom said look actually I don't I don't talk about consent with my submissives I I actually want them to say no because for a submissive to get into a space where they feel safe enough to say no, they feel confident enough to say no or that they want me to stop or that it doesn't feel great, that for him is consent, which I found mind-blowing. I was like, oh, saying no is consent because that makes a lot of sense in a BDSM context. So for them to feel safe to say no I think is a really important thing and I think it would be great for us to sort of start thinking about consent for, for submissives in that way and talking about that in the BDSM space a lot more and teaching that to, to DOMs 
because it's easy to say yes, even if you don't mean it. And women particularly are, are sort of socialised to say yes anyway. So I think that for me was the most surprising thing that blew my mind is that I thought I had consent pretty sorted. And it sounds like a super straightforward thing. And it's normally couched that way, like yes means yes and no means no. In BDSM, man, that is so not true. And actually in real life, generally, vanilla, it's not true either. Um, and so I think we need to be very, very clear what we think of when we think of consent and is that enough? Is that enough consent? Or is that just someone saying, oh, I'm going to go with this because I'm not sure if I am not if I can not go with this? And like, I'm not sure what would happen if I said no. For those of us who are not in academia, is there a lot of research on BDSM? There's some that dips into BDSM um, just on specific like consent sort of stuff. But I'm like, that's why I did this research because there's such a gap, particularly for heterosexual couples. Um, there was no BDSM research before this looking specifically at male doms with female subs. Realistically, I think it's just seen as sort of a fetish rather than it being a sexual preference and also I think there's been a lot of pushback from particular feminist schools of thought the BDSM is just inherently abusive and inherently patriarchal and therefore shouldn't be kind of studied in any way so I think that is something that I would really like to see change as well that we recast BDSM away from it being some kind of you know women hating woman beating thing to like what it really is which actually women do a lot of the beating themselves. So, you know, like it's kind of, it's an equal opportunity sport. Um, yeah. So I think, um, but yeah, I also think BDSM isn't understood. This is a really fun community. It's a fun thing to do. Have fun. And that's the thing. Like it's, you know, laugh at each other, laugh at yourselves. Um, if you go to a club, you'll see there's a lot of people smiling and laughing and having fun. You know, it's not, all dungeons and whips and, you know, chains and women in corners, you know, with gags in. It's, it's so not like that. Also, um, find good people and get training. There's great workshops and all that sort of stuff, but actually mentoring is a really great way to get um, experience. And if you're thinking about trying something new, Google it. Like at least find out, find where it's gone wrong. You know, like if you're going to try breath play, my God, please read some of the case studies because you'll do it right if you're scared into doing it right. Don't drink or take drugs while you're doing play because your inhibition is completely changed. Subs will say yes to shit they absolutely wouldn't if they were straight and doms will do stuff because they're not able to control themselves or they're not able to observe what's happening properly. Thank you so much, Nadia, for being on our podcast. And uh, yeah, my mind's blown. There's so much to think about. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. These discussions are really vital. So well done for doing the podcast. That's a wrap for today's journey, Kinky Superheroes. Next week, we promise, we promise, 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 we will be bringing our kinky companions back to talk about aftercare and whether sex and kink go together. Follow us on Instagram at help I think I'm kinky, one word, to see and share your kinky superhero images and to stay up to date with future episodes. Like and follow on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode and please leave us a glowing review. Thanks again for joining us and remember, follow your kinky heart, but take your brain with you.